Joey from the Jungle Alliance and the Jungle Brothers here, and I wanted to tell you that our next Coaches Intensive is coming up on the 5th and 6th of February, 2022. Now, that's a little over two months away from now. This is the course that you want to do if you want to be a world-class coach and you want to build your own successful PT business. I will be facilitating the course along with other Jungle Brothers staff members. It'll be two days here at the gym on a Saturday and Sunday where we cover all of the key skill sets you need to be an exceptional coach and be successful within the fitness industry. And this course is also your gateway into joining the Jungle Alliance. If you are interested, get in touch. We have an early bird offer available if you purchase your spot before the end of 2021. Joey at junglebrothers.com. Flick me an email and I'll get back in touch with you for a chat about the course. Today's episode was a fascinating chat with a friend of mine from the movement realm named Mark Bernacki. Now, Mark is the co-owner of Modus Perth, which is a gym in Western Australia, which he runs with Margaret Dernan, a friend of mine and also a guest on the Jungle Brothers podcast back on episode 133. Make sure you check that episode out after this one if you haven't heard it already. He is also a mentorship student of Edo Portal. So he is very tightly devoted to the movement game. And as such, he has some very unique perspectives on the training process. We spoke about different modes of training that Mark has experienced from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu through to weightlifting, ball sports, rock climbing, and then of course the movement game. And we really talked about how taking these perspectives that he has learned from movement and applying them to other modes of training can allow anyone to yield greater results from less time spent doing the actual training. So a really appropriate chat for anyone who goes to the gym, anyone who trains or plays a sport. I hope that after listening to this podcast, you will train better and get more from it. Please enjoy this chat with Mark Bernacki. Mark Bernacki, welcome to the show, my brother. Thanks for having me. Mate, pleasure. I apologize, first and foremost, that we haven't been able to spend more time together since you've been here in Sydney. It's all right, you got things going on. It's, fuck it, it's gym life. You always, I'm sure you can identify. You think, uh, man, when I've got my own gym, it's going to be great. And have time to hang out with friends. They're going to come visit. We'll do some training, get to spend time, go for coffee, that kind of thing. And then someone comes and visits and you're like, I'm so fucking busy. Yep. I can see you for a little snippet here and here. Maybe do a class together. Yep. There's a lot of pulls on your attention at all times. Yeah. Um, can we, uh, you're an old friend from the movement realm and yep. we haven't seen each other since. This is the first time you've been to this gym. So it's probably been what, like five years? Something like that. Yeah. When did you guys open this one? Uh, I guess five years ago. I think it's our fifth Christmas party this coming weekend. Oh, wow. That's how I measure it. We opened in November and then, you know, shortly after. Yeah, it was and the first it's been party. five years. Yeah. Um, you came and visited the old gym. And even then it was like, we, because we were movement buddies, we'd only catch up at certain events. Yeah. That kind of thing. You were coming from the States. Since, the in, you know, since that time, since we last hung out, you've gone and opened your own gym, Modus. Correct. In Perth. Yep. Which for anyone who's listening, we did a podcast with your business partner and friend, Margaret Dernan. Okay. Which was out about four episodes ago. Excellent episode on uh, women's strength and movement and that whole thing. Um, I guess, bef- you know, could you, could you tell me like you're an American? Yes. Don't hold it against him. Can you talk on uh, how you ended up here, you know, living in Australia, opening your gym, that whole piece? Yep. So um, I was still in uni at the time when I came across Edo's work. I'd been trying to do this kind of movement stuff just from finding it online. 
trying to jump in in the middle here, but that's all right. I studied in uni uh, exercise science um, and really enjoyed just the physical practice of all of it. Tried to do it myself, came across Ido at some point and just kept paying attention to that. Long story short, at some point, uh, he put an event on in Singapore and I just had to go. So that was in 2013. I flew to Singapore, did the movement camp there for seven days. Oh, movement camp was your first event. That was my first event. Yeah. Wow. Because all the events at the time were in Europe or Asia and wow. I wasn't going to fly to Europe for a two day weekend. Yeah. It wasn't worth it financially, time wise, anything. So I saved up and went to Singapore. Um, went back to the States. I'm from Chicago originally and just started training there a little bit. Started doing some online coaching with Ido after a while. And then there was rumors of another movement camp happening. I took those rumors, decided, okay, I'm going to just work train and save up my money. And when that camp happens, I am going to buy a one-way ticket there. The rationale there was I also kind of want to travel with my life. We'll see. So I want to see what happens, put myself out there. Uh, so I bought the one-way ticket and it was, a, it was a great event. At that event, I met so many friends. I think that's where I met you. Were you at 2015 or 2016? Oh, it's a good question. I don't know. Thailand? Thailand, yeah. Thailand, I guess. I couldn't say. Yeah. It would have, you did one or two? I did too. Yeah, then you were at 2015. 2015 was Joseph Bartz. Correct. Was part of that? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, yep. Okay, so I met you there. Yep. And then uh, I met a whole bunch of people. I started to travel from there, went to Cambodia, stayed in Thailand with people, went to Perth and stayed, spent some time with Margaret, went to Melbourne, Sydney. I think we met up at, for a time. That was because, yeah, I went to the old JB yep. that weekend. And you then got I went the classic the handstand photo in front of the old roller door. That's right. That's Which right. people thought was me, and I didn't feel the need to correct them. Why, not? Why would you? <laughs> um, so yeah, and then I made my way back to the States, and uh, got along really well with Margaret, and ended up moving back to Perth um, for, for the relationship first. You got along, got along. Yeah. And then uh, a few years later, we, we started up Modus. Right on. So that one-way ticket really was like the beginning of quite a big adventure. Yeah, 100%. And I remember traveling in Thailand because, you know, after camp, I had met a few people and I got to this place of, I was doing kind of the backpacker thing. And then I kept, kept sneaking off away from the group to just go train. I, and I realized I can't, I can't do both of these things uh, effectively. I have to pick one and kind of commit to it. And then my line of thinking was the best day to do something physical is yesterday. And I'm only getting older. So the more I can develop a physicality, more awareness of the body, how to keep things, I keep the longevity going, the better off I'll be. And then I can travel later if I, if I want, because my body will be in a shape to, to handle it. Right. So that's what kind of led me to, all right, I'm doing the movement thing. Was the, when you say the backpacking thing, was it at that time, were you in that kind of typical backpacking realm where it's like, we're going out for beers every day, kind of partying, not really eating particularly well, like that whole thing? Well, that was the problem, right? Is I tried to do that and I wasn't. I didn't want to drink because that would affect my training the next day. So like it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to connect completely with the people that I was with because I was half-assing it. You were the square guy. Yeah. Like oh, Mark doesn't drink that much. But then if I tried to explain what I was doing, oftentimes they didn't get it either. So it was a weird conversation to have sometimes. Yeah. So then I, it was just easier to be like, yeah, this is, this isn't going to work out because then I'd make friends and they'd be like, Hey, let's go do something tonight. I'd be like, no, I'll be in bed by eight. Like, <laughs> so it, it, didn't, it didn't go well making friends that way. So I had to go uh, find my own friends. And that's where I traveled around and started just catching up with people who I'd met at camp. Would you consider yourself 
a bit of an exception to um, your counterparts back home, like in the States. And I, I ask that from the perspective of when I was traveling in the States, and obviously it's a huge fucking country. I never went to Chicago, but, you know, went all down the West Coast, a little bit on the East Coast, met some amazing people. But I did often meet folks who were like really surprised that I had just turned up by myself to travel in their country. I remember a couple of people being like, how, like, how do you do that? And I'm like, well, you just book a ticket and you can come here. But they were like, no, but like, don't you miss home? And like, don't, you know, and, and there is, um, you know, this, the States is known for having whatever people that really love the States and, yeah. you know, kind of see it as the center and that sort of thing. Um, do, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. Um, I think it's just odd for most people in general, but it's becoming less odd just from the internet. Right. Because now you have people making a living, making YouTube videos from their backpacking adventures. Whereas back then, yeah, it, I, some people are just like, how, how are you going to do that? I'm just like live cheaply, look for maybe, maybe find a job, maybe do whatever I need to do and just have the experience. You know, the, a lot of the countries are a bit cheaper to live in anyway. Right. Yeah. In the Western world. Um, Especially when you got that U.S. dollar. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I've got some funny stories about make, squeezing it by, you know, just making sure I could I could eat just enough to, to keep going cheaply. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's weird anywhere, right? Uh, it is. Uh, I, here in Australia, though, it's a real, you know, it's a real rite of passage to go travel. Okay. And it's a real common thing. Like, um, you know, we don't say this, but in, in, I think in the UK, they call it the gap year, the gap mm. between, you know, high school, finishing high school and starting uni. It's like, oh, what did you, where'd you go for your gap year? Oh, you know, and you, you know, fly around the world somewhere. Yeah. So it's almost like a real given, I think, for a lot of folks. Obviously, you know, there's a real, you know, whatever, people who have the, the, the means to do so. Mm. Um, but I've always, my impression was that it wasn't such a rite of passage for Americans. Yeah, I wouldn't say as much, but I'd say it's probably getting a little bit more normalized. How old were you when you did that? Like, how old were you when I met you at Movement Camp 2015? 2015 um i would have been 22 right on 22 yeah so does that make you now like 28 29 29 yeah. right on exceptional young man yeah i mean even even in uni i, I would still go to bed at 8 30 most of the time and I, I had my nights out and all of that kind of thing but i always looked at it as if i stay up late tonight then it's going to affect my training tomorrow and now in uni i was just trying to train myself and i just got very injured because of it you know i wasn't doing things very well um, but I still wanted to keep trying to train. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I like to tell people when they ask what the background is physically, I say my background's in injuries. Because <laughs> I just kept doing things wrong and messing it up, which is why when I did find someone who seemed to be clued into things, um, I just kept going back for more. Your training uh, before getting into the movement pace, and for, you know, I'm sure anyone that's listening knows who Ido Portal is. We, we drop his name every, you know, quite often. But he really is the kind of the guy that gave rise to the whole movement culture and this idea of movement as a as a as a form of training, whether or not that was necessarily his intention, but that's how it's been received, right? Um, but um, before you found him and got into that, what did your training look like? Uh, mostly just bits and pieces I could pull off the internet. I'd found Ido's old, blo old blog. I was trying some stuff from there. Uh, some of the other workshops that were out there, some of the gymnastics work. Whatever I could find that seemed to be in this small little realm um, of people that seemed to be congregating around some of Vito's ideas really in the beginning, uh, I'd just try to do it. But, you know, basic things of not understanding 
what I needed to start. For example, my predisposition is to be very mobile. Strength is hard for me to, to work with. Um, I didn't have a good strength background. Uh, I'd always slouch in chairs, like put myself in weird stretch positions and just hang out there for hours that played video games. Um, so my body was just not meant, uh, not good at creating tension at the time for, for strength work. But then I tried to do strength work and I was like, oh, I'm young. I can do one rep, so I can do 10 reps. And then I just injured myself, you know, on rep three, four, five, and, or overuse and all these uh, type of issues. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was just kind of, what can I find? I'm going to try it and see what works. And I, I convinced myself stuff was working, but most of the time it wasn't. On the bright side, it gave me a lot of insight on to how to deal with injuries, both from a mental perspective, but also what exercises can start to help with that too. Do you think that having that predisposition to being more mobile was kind of at the heart of a lot of that, in, uh, at a lot of the injuries because you're able to get into positions, but you don't necessarily have stability there? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And um, also weird things would happen because of it, you know, now and anyone might have been injured in these situations, but my shoulders made it even weirder in some cases. For example, I remember watching, you know, back in the States, we've got cheerleaders at the football games. I watched one of them do a back handspring and I was like, oh, I can do that. I just remember jumping back and clunk. Uh, that wasn't a good one. Another time I like was, landed it, but just oh, no, I just landed on my arm and just felt something in my shoulder. Oh, right. Clunk. Yeah. So that was sore for a bit. And I remember uh, at a gymnastics gym, they have a thing called a strap bar. Do you know what this is? Strap bar? No, so it's for the high bar that you see in gymnastics uh, competition sometimes. Right. They take a PVC pipe around the bar, and then you strap yourself to the PVC pipe. And the idea is now grip is no longer a limiting factor. Right. And you can train yourself to do the swings without worrying about the grip so much. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is great. And I played with it a few times, and then one time I went to do a giant, which is swinging all the way around the bar, yep. um, outstretched through the handstand in top. And it was my first time, and I was just trying to swing further, 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 further. And I got... Finally got upside down to that handstand position, and it's hard to explain in uh, on audio only, but I just started tipping over the top and fell through my shoulders, so I essentially just went straight down and landed in a German hang. Oh, because you didn't have, like, you obviously didn't have the speed to just whip around, so didn't you kind of yeah. went up, floated a little bit, and then came straight down. Yeah, I hit the handstand at the top, and the position of the arms, actually, once again, I felt something funny in the shoulder, just like a little collapse through, then I just went through my arms and uh, landed in a German hang. It's like most people's arms wouldn't have let them go in that position. Yeah. But it just happened. Fuck it. It's funny. It, it's good for people to hear this because mobility, as we know, is often one of the key limiting factors mm. for folks, particularly males. I, I would, you know, so safe to generalize and say, um, that holds them back from achieving a lot of things in their training. And it can be really easy when you're in that realm of like you're tight, but, but you usually, you know, they usually the trade-off is they're pretty strong, but it can be really easy. Like, fuck, I just wish I was more flexible. Mm. There is a downside to being too flexible. Yep. And so it's like, well, yeah, you can have more of that, but that, you know, if you're too far on that end of the spectrum, it also comes with its own potential risks. Mm -hmm. And this is one thing we talk about a lot is in almost every uh, personality body, physical, whatever it is, there's always a spectrum of how people are. One is the tends towards mobility or tends towards strength. And whatever you are, you need to go to the other one. A lot of people just simply don't know because they've had a relatively sedentary lifestyle. Start moving. Then you'll figure it out. And that will just gently guide what you should be doing anyway, as far as addressing the body layer. But this also comes from uh, predispositions towards type of training, right? 
You get someone who comes from a yoga background, just as an example, nothing against yoga. Someone from, comes from a yoga background, oftentimes they need to put a bar on their back and squat. You get someone who comes from a CrossFit background, sometimes they just need to sit there, eyes closed, be still, and chill out a bit. Yeah. Right? Or do some stretching or whatever it is. Yeah. But it's just an example of the spectrum of general softer practices, maybe dancers, yoga, other side, you know, powerlifting, um, athletes who just go hard all the time. It's, that's going to have issues for you. Both sides of the spectrum. So find yourself towards the middle, go a little bit past the middle to experience the other side, and then try to find that, uh, that uh, oscillating homeostasis. Like that happy medium. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. I think, like you said, there's like a... Uh, like an emotional predisposition or, you know, people have a tendency. It's like, oh, but, but I'm a yoga person. Mm. So that's what I do. Yeah. And that's what all your friends do. And it's what you're talking about. And that's the, the, the subculture you're part of. So you're like uh, the concept of going to the gym and squatting. It, it seems silly to me. It doesn't align with the mm. values of my culture. Yeah. But when you look at it from that sheer perspective of physicality and what do you actually need to be able to express your best physicality, it's, it's, it, it's not related to the culture. It's related to like mechanically, what do you need? Yeah. Yeah. And then you glorify certain positions that might just be furthering your, your, I don't want to say issue, but um, your predisposition will stick with that. And this is something Ido has talked about a little bit of, did you choose your practice or did your practice choose you? Right. Did you get into yoga because you are already very mobile? And now anyone who's deep in yoga will tell you it's not just about the physical side, but that's usually people's introduction, right? Um, did you get into a certain type of lifting or a certain sport just because your body is kind of geared towards it, right? The swimmer, the long torso, shorter legs, big feet, long arms. Yeah. Well, of course they didn't become a runner. Now, this is how people get selected at a young age or, or uh, tend towards something at a young age where they have success and start to learn with time. But oftentimes that person will have a lot of growth to come from going to the thing that they uh, avoid. Yes. Right? And they'll, they'll never be world-class at it. But most of us aren't going to be world-class at the thing we're good at anyway. That's a great point. So why not, if, if we're in it to improve and challenge ourselves and, and try to get better and grow, you should go to the thing that you're avoiding. Go to the thing that you don't want to do just because there's something to be, to be learned there. And at the very least, it's going to be learning to deal with your frustrations as you continue to suck at it for a while. What do you think, to that point, what do you think about someone and i guess i'm looking at someone who you know walks into your gym walks into our gym you know they're prepared to train a few days a week kind of thing like that you know they're not committing to it on the level that say we have or do but they're like yeah I'm, I'm keen to do the thing are you saying then that you know hey turn your back on what you on on what you're good at and what you love for now to focus on that or is it like a ratio thing where it's like start to weave a little bit of the stuff in that you don't like but still work on what it is that you do it, it's a function i believe of how long are you have you been training and how much time are you willing to do how much time are you willing to to commit to it for example i'll use my mother she's in her 60s now um had some osteo pre-osteoporosis problems is a word for it blanking um for her the best use of her time is to do some version of weight training right now there's there's other things we can get to but that's the first priority what is my situation and what do I need? So maybe you get someone in um, who's particularly looking for something like weight loss. Well, they, need, they might want to address that first. Depending on the individual, 
I might suggest a longer term plan of there's so much more in this world than just weight loss. Let's start educating on that. But if they are so overweight that they're, they're not unable to function, you need to address that in the first place. Yeah. All the practices that go behind that. So first thing is, have they been training before? Um, if not, you probably have to give them a little bit of the thing they're looking for. If you're just, someone comes in, I'm here to weight train. And you're like, no, nah, you're going to do yoga. They're going to leave. It's not going to be, it's not going to be a long-term relationship. Yeah. So how do you get people in the door and get them experiencing mostly something that they're there for, but also start to expose them to the other side of the coin and gradually educate them on the benefits of, of doing more than just what they want to. Yeah, so it's sprinkling those little bits in there. It's, yeah. it's giving them what they like, what, they're there, what, what sort of meets their expectations, but then also starting to kind of influence and educate a little bit. And, and you know, we talk about it sometimes in terms of like uh, you are folding, putting the vegetables into the, the meat sauce. Mm. So kids will eat their veggies that way, you know. It's like it's bolognese. Uh, but but you know it's like and then over time hopefully you 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 come out and the person has changed their perspectives and is more willing to embrace wholeheartedly perhaps things that they once thought sucked yeah yeah and now what i think happens most of the time is when people do this they're they're willing to embrace it but usually they still won't let go of the thing that they love and i always wonder well what are you here for you know sometimes you see people they get in the fitness world first for some aesthetic purpose or health purpose great and then from there they're like i do this because i like to challenge myself so i'm going to keep pushing my back squat numbers my whatever numbers because i want to challenge myself and then maybe they get into another discipline rock climbing jujitsu whatever it is and they're like oh i want to keep challenging myself but there's a whole world of things that they still avoid and if you're truly there for the biggest challenge the person who's doing rock climbing lifting and jujitsu should probably go to a dance class Mm -hmm. because that's going to be the biggest challenge. So it's not actually that they want to find the, the biggest challenge for themselves. And now that, that's a tricky, tricky term, right? Because I could say, okay, I'm going to walk around the world, and that's a ridiculous challenge. But if you see what I mean, like what's the, the most confronting thing for me to do as the biggest challenge? What's going to force me to grow the, the, at the highest rate or the most from the experience? You should probably go to that other realm. So people don't look for that challenge. They look for the challenge that they like. Yes, that's not saying it's not a challenge. By all means, you know, I do, there some crazy workouts or whatever it is. Jiu-jitsu is absolutely a challenge. Yeah. But after how many years does it become the comfortable challenge? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I see that like, you know, I see like if I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you and I think about the movement realm and, and, you know, the times when I was more involved in it and, and sort of like trying to follow the, you know, the, the word that, that, Ido was putting out there. It was really like a cha- the the. It's almost it's uh, how do I say this? The, it's like a it's a pure movement perspective, mm. where it's like, we're not interested in any kind of attachment, or, or or, uh, culture or like setting, or context. We're just interested in like finding, you know, chasing this like, this freedom of expression this this true movement piece and so it kind of embraces everything Mm. which is tricky because i know like say you know speaking from my perspective as a jiu-jitsu person i'm like yeah but i really like jiu-jitsu you know and it's and it's 
you know, or say with a lot of people in the movement realm, they got introduced to it because of the strength. It was the body weight strength that brought them yeah. in. And so it's like, yeah, yeah we're, we're all doing the movement thing. But then when Edo was like, it's not about the body weight strength anymore. It's about uh, whatever, you know, your relationship with the floor. And, you know, that it's like, mm. oh, shit, context has changed. Yeah. And it almost separates the people like, are you a purist? Or were you here because you liked that thing? Yeah. You know, and, I, and I, I can honestly say I was there for that thing. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't mind fucking around with the other stuff. But, yeah. but so I think like what you're saying there is like, yeah, that, that, that idea of finding the true challenge, that's from a real purist's point of view, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a good concept to, to consider regardless of what your choices end up being. I think a lot of people delude themselves into thinking that they're doing one thing when they're actually doing something else. For example, um, uh, sorry, uh, for example, some people get, they say they like to do movement, but they really just do a bunch of different disciplines. Like I like movement because I do rock climbing, I do some weightlifting, I do a martial art, I go for a swim, I do some surfing. It's like, yeah, I just like movement because there's no other way to put it. It's like, no, you'd like those five things. But what's in between those five things? And I think there's no right answer. I never want to, I, I don't care what someone else chooses. I don't think that what they do is, is a lesser thing. But I think they should have some serious consideration into what they're doing and the cost benefit of it. Right. Right. An example I give there is, you know, you like climbing a lot. You like climbing so much that you're doing it most of the time and you're wearing those shoes all the time, which are going to mess up your feet. You can't be a high-level climber and have healthy feet. So if your feet are suffering from your climbing practice, you don't have a generalist perspective, even if you do go surfing and do some running and whatever else it is. And that's not to say anything bad about climbing. It's just something I think you should consider unless you're going to pro levels and making a living off of it. Right. Yeah, so as to, as to sort of not be deluding yourself. But then that begs the question, say, tell me with your training... Yeah, and, and you found, when did you find jiu-jitsu? When did you get bitten by the bug? Ooh. Um, I think I started doing it. So the last movement camp was 2019 now. Right. And we did uh, some stuff with Aran Burt. And he's in, he's in Tel Aviv. And he's got a facility there where he does all sorts of um, MMA training, jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai stuff. Um, and after that camp, I, I went back and found a place nearby and started Started dipping my toe in the waters there. Right on. Yeah. You dipped your toes pretty conceited. You got a blue belt, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a rank. You know, it's, it's not an, an easy thing to achieve. That's a start, yeah. Um, you know, obviously, that is a very specialized form of practice. Mm. And, it, and, and, you know, it comes with its own downsides yep. in terms of what it does to the body. A friend of mine once likened it to um, jujitsu is like the act of burning wood. And then going to the gym and doing your mobility and your strength work, that's the act of collecting the firewood. Yeah. So it's like, if you just burn it, you're going to end up, you know, with problems. But if you collect and burn it, you know, there's a healthy balance there. Um, but, you know, how do you reconcile that when, say, you get into something you're like, oh, I really, I really love this thing now. Would you, like, throughout your jiu-jitsu time, I know you're not as focused on it now, but say through that time when you were at, a, you know, peak interest with it, was it always... Oh, this is just something I'm exploring for now? Or was there a time when you're like, oh, I've found something here that I'm, you know, I'm in. Like, I don't give a fuck what the downsides are. I'm doing this. 
I'd have to say it's the first thing that I've found other than this movement world, whatever that is, um, where I've been like, I could see myself doing this exclusively for a long time. Everything else never com like completely drew my attention. I was like, I, I could stick with this for a long time. Um, but maybe that was just in the beginning. You know, it's, it's also, I, I don't understand anything and it, it gets addicting from that purpose. And then the ego comes in and, and all of that kind of thing when you consistently get smashed and then you get first bit of success and that, that pulls you along. Um, I, I still train it somewhat regularly, but I think the, the perspective that you approach it with is, is a bit different. I always go in with a plan and I'm trying to see what principles from my movement world do I know that I can apply to the learning of this new art, to this new discipline. And then I try to reverse that. And what have I done here that I can take back to the movement world and apply differently? Right. Rather than just leaving it as this isolated thing. But I still recognize that I am doing a discipline and I almost view that as like separate from the, the movement oriented practice. They're just, they just go hand in hand. I joke sometimes. It's my non-movement uh, hobby. <laughs> it's more training. Yeah, it's physical. But That's your joke amongst movement friends. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. But I think part of it is, the, one of the reasons I actually got addicted to it is because it's the first thing that really uh, confronted emotions in, and uh, pressure in a way that I hadn't ha handled it before. The thing that got me, I think, more interested is I was doing it maybe once a week, twice a week, something like that, you know, an hour here, hour there. And then I did a competition. And at the competition, I, I, you get out on the mat and just the adrenaline dump comes in and, the, and can't move. You can't function. Nothing works. It's like, what the hell's going on? I'm playing a game here and I can tap at any time and yet I'm still not functioning. And it's, for me, it's something I don't like being in the spotlight. I don't like attention. The only thing I'd ever felt similar to that, because I grew up, when I was younger, I played soccer, which is a team sport, right? Wasn't even good at it. I was on the bench most of the time. No pressure on the bench. Um, but the closest thing I remember to this feeling was I, I played in jazz band in high school. And I played saxophone, sat in the front row, and then you'd do solos. And when you do the solo, you stand up in front of everyone, the lights are on you, and all your mistakes are out there to be heard, and all the good things, of course, too. But I didn't like that spotlight. I like being in the band and, you know, kind of hidden in, in the group. Yeah. But when I stood up, I just remember, like, my body feeling heavy and all, all this pressure going on. And I'd never felt anything like that before. I'd never done martial arts, never no solo sport. So when I go out there and now it's, I get that same feeling and someone's trying to break my arm, this is something for me to explore. So the real reason I kept actually, I, I started training a bit more from there is I need to go back into that because that's a massive part of me that's like, you know, operating in a, in a fight or flight situation and not operating well. Yeah. I don't thrive in that situation. So I, I did another one or two competitions. I'm not sure. They were both, they were all at white belt, like the level's so low anyway, in the corner of the world. Right. Um, and it really wasn't a big deal, but something for me of being in front of all those people who aren't judging whatsoever. I, I fully recognize and can logically talk through, yet most of them aren't even watching me. No one actually cares. I'm just out here trying. And yet something in my body shuts down there. Yeah. So I went back and, until, I, until I got double golden, and I was like, all right, okay, I can pull the brakes. I've, I've been able to deal with that and still perform to some level. Um, and I'm sure I'll go back to it at some point, but what I recognized, it was pulling me away from the movement training that I, I truly care about because it's so addicting, as you know. You lay in bed at night going, what if I go into that tournament and they take me into this one area, deep half guard, and I'm not trained there, <laughs> and then that, I lose just because they're better than me. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, this is not, not healthy for me long-term. I'll keep training, but it's not going to be, it can't be a focus. Right. Because then it becomes addicting in its own ways. And okay, if I'm addicted to it, maybe I'll, I'll take a, a, a step away. Yeah, okay. You, uh, you got double gold. So you went back and did another comp after that one? Yep. How much time passed in between? Oh, well, in between that was all the lockdowns and everything. Right. So I had a fair bit of time not really training in there as well. Um, I think it was probably a year. Okay. So yeah. what, it was like beginning of this year or late last year you did the comp? Uh, yeah, late last year. So it was a year ago, I, th- I think I did that. And then I've been all over the place since then. Uh, and a year before that was when I did my first one. Yeah, right on. Yeah. That's cool. Was your last comp at white or blue belt? White, white. Awesome. What I wanted to ask, the, you mentioned about seeing themes or learnings in the movement realm that you can apply to your jiu-jitsu and then you know, also going back the other way. Could you give an example of what some of those things may be? Um, what I like to do in these situations is observe what are some things that I maybe could already do naturally or couldn't do naturally like, and by naturally, I mean when I just showed up on the mat that first day, naturally for my first days of jiu-jitsu. Yep. And I was pretty good at moving on the floor. And then you look over and you see most of the other white belts, all of the other white belts can't move on the floor. And I notice in jiu-jitsu there's this trend of keep coming back and you'll learn it. And what do you notice? By the time they get to purple belt, people can move on the floor a certain way. Whereas whatever I had done in the past allowed me to already be at that level. Now, I knew nothing technically. I'd still get wrecked. I wasn't any good, but I could still be frustrating in certain ways, and I picked some things up a bit quicker. And then I was thinking, okay, so how can you teach someone to move on the floor for jujitsu? Not as an exercise because I want to teach people to do jujitsu, but as an exercise because then if I were to teach someone who's got, let's say, the movement perspective or something like that into this grappling world, how would you start doing it? Because the answer is not necessarily make them do three years of uh, expressive leaning floor work, right? That's, that's not practical. It's not what most people want. But there's plenty of things you can do that come from maybe a bit of an improvisational world or integration world, if we use Ito's isolation, integration, improvisation, that help a new person massively learn how to mo- maneuver on the floor. And you can absolutely do it by just Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Eventually, you'll pick it up for sure. Um, but we can expedite that process, I believe. So I've been playing with that with a few of my students, actually, and, and seeing how it's, how it's going. Um, Could you talk me through what, you know, in, you know, trying to keep it simple, but describe what that might look like for someone coming into the gym? What are you, what are you doing? Start by approaching it as just floor movement. Don't worry about the other person. Then you introduce another person as a constructive uh, tool. They're not trying to undermine you or beat you or tap you or anything. But you just get used to maneuvering first yourself on the floor, then yourself with another person, and then you make some more open scenario games. And we were, we were uh, exposed to this. I wasn't thinking of it this way at the time, but of course I immediately recognized it once I started thinking about it uh, at the movement camp with some of the martial arts classes with Iran. He, um, one of the games he did with us there and, and broke down a bit, which I'm sure you've done at some point, is to take the sock game, put the sock in the games like that, which are, which are pretty big in the wrestling world, 
Um, unfortunately, I didn't wrestle in high school, even though it's pretty large in the States. It's a big thing. But there's lots of games because that's how you teach kids. Yeah. But adults are, are kids that just need a bit more of the top-down top down information. They need a bit more of the details. But games are still a phenomenal way of teaching. Yeah. So once people can move on the floor a little bit with some basic elements, and then you uh, add another person into it, then you add the person in trying to do something. Something, you know, a, a, a back-and-forth game. There's a, there's a winner. Yeah. And this opens up the world um, much more quickly because not everything is done against resistance. And you do a lot of things in exploratory mindset in that second layer with the, with the constructive partner of just a partner stands there, for example. Okay, start maneuvering around. What can you do with their legs to help you move? How can I use them to move my body as they stand there still? How can I use them as an anchor to pull myself towards or push myself away with no worry about, oh, are they going to pass my legs, pass my guard? Just find out what can I do on the floor. Then when you go to the mat, you quickly figure out, yeah, I don't roll on my stomach and expose my back, right? It doesn't take long to figure that one out, and you probably didn't need to make the mistake anyway to know that. Yep. But you do that trial and error process. You do something like, whoa, that was not a good thing. I, I won't do that again. Yep. But it's not hard to just not make that choice again. But you had, the point is you have these choices that take you in a bunch of different directions. I can go there, I can go there, because I know how to move my body. And the reality is you're not going to think about it. It's going to happen. It's just going to happen. But if you don't go through that process, then you don't have the possibilities. Yes. And maybe some things you don't find out until someone shows you a technique. But, and maybe some things you just figure out from live, live sparring, live rolling, right? But that process, I think, can be progressed much more quickly. It's just how do we maneuver ourselves on the floor because it opens up so many worlds. How many people do you know when they start learning their first, I don't know, um, open guard situation where it's some X guard or Ashi or something like that and they're just so confused about how to lift someone's weight onto them or roll shift weight on their back. But if you've spent time maneuvering yourself on the floor, the other person just becomes an extension of yourself. Yeah. Right? And, of course, it's a bit different. You get awkward moments here and there, but it's so much better. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I th for people listening, I, I think it's like to kind of simplify the concept. It's, it's these this understanding of movement on a really on a physical level, like having an, uh, a physical um, intelligence that we, that you can take for granted. Can't you? And it's like, Oh, how do you do that? And you, oh, just do it. Whereas for a lot of folks who, whatever, they haven't had the exposure to the, the, the necessary sports or whatever things that are going to teach them this kind of coordination or understanding, you, they can't do it. So what I find very interesting about what you're putting forward there is that for the standard jiu-jitsu coach, they don't, they, you know, they're not, they don't look at anything from, a, from that movement perspective. They're just looking at it from, a, from the jiu-jitsu perspective, which is really just whatever conditioning is they have from when they were coached. And so it's like, just do this, put your body here, put your body here. But what you're able to do there is kind of look under, the, like lift up the rug a little bit and say like, ah, okay, there's a, there's a concept here that their body doesn't understand. So how can we work that concept? And then kind of that, you know, like what you're saying, it can hopefully feed into their training 
in an organic fashion rather than them just sort of bashing it out for years on end and hopefully picking it up. Yeah, and this is something I, I appreciate from Ido more than anything else is his uh, discussions about teaching and how he's taught all this material over the years. The material is phenomenal, but he's also teaching it certain ways and discussing that and how should you approach a new topic. This is one of the biggest issues with, with teaching adults anything anymore. You get the ex-gymnast teaching an adult how to do gymnastics. Well, it's, it's fairly well known that the highest performers are not always the best, are usually not the best coaches mm-hmm. because they didn't have to struggle that much themselves when, I, when we're talking about elite, elite levels. But then even a step down from that, most people who got to any reasonably high level of something usually started when they were younger. So even a kid learning is very different from an adult learning, right? Kids just pick things up so quickly, stop, it starts going downhill pretty unfortunately early and and we're pretty uh, we lose a lot of by 25 i believe it is um but they just pick it up so quickly now first of all that changes the the teaching process a, a quick version of this is how do you teach an adult a handstand you teach them a, per, a position you teach them how to hold tension you prepare their wrists their shoulders um Maybe they don't have the range of motion for any of it. You give them the drills to start figuring out the balance and, and all these different details, and it takes months to years depending on the individual. Mm-hmm. How do you teach a kid to do a handstand? Kick up. Oh, you fell down? Kick up again. Kick up again. Kick up again. And now that's very simplified. There's more to it, but that can be enough for a lot of kids because that's how we all learn to walk. No one taught you how to walk. You're teaching your little one how to walk now? No, he just picks it up, right? That's right. And it's, it's visual. He just wants to pull his head up and see further. And they're like, oh, this is a much better way of doing things. And they just pick it up from trying, 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 trying all the time. So that's how we learn as kids. So even if this adult hypothetically remembers everything that they did as a kid, which isn't true as well, that's not how you teach the adult. So Ido has done a phenomenal job of breaking things down First, for a beginner to make things approachable that otherwise you wouldn't think would be approachable. So maybe basic acrobatic stuff. Even the handstand is an example. So now this becomes approachable. And then the next one. And then the next one. And then you get to a phase where, okay, we're intentionally going to teach a little bit less because we want you to get better at this picking up skill, which then becomes a tricky teaching uh, coaching moment of what's the right dosage and when for removing some of the details. I've got some people who come to Modus who have been around for four, four and a half years, and obviously some people who this is their first class, or last week was their first class. How I, should, how I teach them the same move is very different. One guy, the, the guy who's been around for years, very beneficial to speak, watch me do it, now you do it. The new person, you break everything down, put it in bite-sized bite pieces for them so that they can manage it and have some success, which keeps them around for longer. Yeah. So... Anything is very learnable for people if we break it down the right way. And this starts touching into the world as well that of coordination. And some people have a belief of, I'm just not coordinated. Which first, first of all, is just not a good thing to be saying and believing because you're just making it true as you continually reinforce that by saying, yeah, I'm not coordinated. But it's not that you're not coordinated and someone else is coordinated. It's a reference library. That's how we operate. The person who's coordinated has seen and done a lot more varied movements than you. So this is an idea of it, once again, uh, showed to me by Ido. I did not come up with this, and I'm sure other people came up with it before him. But you see dancers and say, so, oh, they're very coordinated. 
Sure, because they learned a ton of different patterns from probably a young age and kept going and kept going and kept going. So they're good at picking things up because every time they learn a new one, it's like, ah, have I seen something kind of like this before? Yep, Up mm. oh, there's now a little bit of mistake I need to clean up. But the person who's seen nothing like it before will be completely lost and feel like a failure if it's not taught well to them. Yeah. So it's not that this person's coordinated and you're not. It's that that person has done a whole bunch of different things. Because you take some dancers and like, oh my gosh, look at this coordination. They picked up this acrobatic element on their first try. And then you throw a ball at them and you, then you see that, you know, they've swept some breadcrumbs under the rug. You know, <laughs> some, some things are hidden. They can't handle the ball. Or this happens with gymnasts too. Oh my gosh, they can jump in the air and do all these flips and twists and they can't kick a ball. Right, put them on a soccer field, useless. Yeah, and that's not that's not a criticism. It's just a, a pointing out that just because they're coordinated in some realms doesn't mean that they are a coordinated person. Yeah, and of course, some people will will, um, will be a bit more naturally talented, maybe, and there's genetics and all of that. But for the most part, ask the person you think is coordinated. Ask them what they've done in their life. They probably played some team sports. Maybe they grew up with other other kids. Um, making up games on the spot. I grew up with with two brothers and we would make up games all the time. So that helped my coordination, right? Because we have a game that's kind of like baseball, football, and soccer all in one and then next time we play it, the rules are different. So you're adapting a little bit and you play team sports, individual sports, whatever it is. And this exposure is what gets you to that quote-unquote coordinated state. So... Like Ido says, it's not this coordination pattern that's going to make you coordinated. And this is what you see out there sometimes. It's, it's, okay, this is our coordination system, but it's one system. It's like, what about all the other types of coordination? So it's not this one that's going to make you coordinated. It's the next one. So then you finish the next one. It's the next one. Once you've done thousands of them, okay, now you can be this coordinated uh, mythical person until it takes you out of that and then you find something you're, you're uncoordinated at. Makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> I looking at jujitsu players, good example. You can see some of the the best jujitsu players in the world, some of the finest athletes, absolute savages on the mats. Can barely walk properly. Like they're so they look so uncoordinated and so awkward because they are so specifically adapted to being a savage on the mats that then when they're upright on two feet, they you know, they they look a mess. Mm. And are. Yeah, you know, um, and I, I, you know, in simple terms, you know, I think folks can understand like this specialized adaptation that occurs when you just do one thing. It's like if you go and play that sport and you've you've always played tennis and you're really good at tennis or you know whatever, maybe you're really average, but if that's what you do, you'll be good at that thing. But it doesn't dictate that you'll be good at other things. Yeah, um, there's a line I heard recently from uh, a friend, Matt Bernstein. Runs Apeco in Colorado. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, give a bit more backstory there first. So you're you're talking about people who have a special uh, specialism problem, right? And I mentioned that earlier with the with the climbing shoes and what it does to your feet. If you do anything to that high level, you're going to have problems in your body because because of it. Once again, good. In some ways, I'm jealous that you found that thing early. Great, good on you. But you have to acknowledge that there's costs that come with it and you're going to beat up your body. We see this in, in all high-level sports that, are, that have collisions, concussion problems. How many times have you torn your ACL? All these different things. So 
you have to acknowledge these costs. And if you're not going to be making your living off of it, is it worth it? And that's a choice for you to decide. No one can tell you otherwise. It's, it's your choice. But how many recreational jujitsu people do you know that are near crippled and they're not making their living off of it? So the line from Bernstein mm. was, I, I listened to, he did a podcast a few months ago and I listened to it. It was something like when you, you show these people a spine wave and they look at you so weird. And he's like, why, why are you doing that? That is weird. He said, well, I think you're weird for having back pain and not taking care of it and thinking it's normal and living with it and just saying, ah, it's part of the game. It's true. It's equally weird. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I suppose it's just that uh, culturally that pain, that, you know, that, that sports-specific thing, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think back, I mean, to answer your question, almost needs no response, but yeah, you know, the vast majority of jiu-jitsu players I know are hobbyists and are injured. Yep. You know, and are dealing with, you know, pain because of it. Fuck, look back prior to that when I played, I played, you know, soccer as a kid up until my, you know, early 20s. And, you know, I played with guys who were just these weekend warriors, you know, who had terrible knees, arthritis, you know, constant niggling back injuries, but they were out there every Saturday, you know, carving it up on the field to then be pumping anti-inflammatories for the rest of the week. Yep. You know, and, you, and, and it's like, it's incredible what we accept and what we, what we will take in order to have that enjoyment. Mm. Which is a beautiful thing about being human, right? We can put up with a lot of stuff, but then flip that on the other side and it's like, okay, we know that we can put up a lot of stuff if we enjoy it. So find ways to get yourself to enjoy something. So those things that you don't like so much, Maybe if you moved away, going back to the earlier part of the conversation, if you moved away from the stuff that you like doing to the stuff you don't like doing and found some aspect of it that you, that you could enjoy, it would probably balance your body out a little bit. Because when we look at that weekend warrior as an example, th that's probably the most extreme one of what are they getting from this, this activity? One, enjoyment, and two, they probably tell themselves it's for their fitness. But, and their health. But then why are your knees are wrecked from your arthritis, what, all these things, and you need the anti-inflammatories? Is it really, like, would that time be better spent doing something else? Maybe now you say, no, because I'm just going to do the thing I enjoy. Great. But maybe you'll have a different answer at 70 when you're struggling a little bit more. That's why I think it's, it's good to start exploring the things that you don't enjoy as much. And at a simple level, everyone knows this. Oh, yeah, I need to stretch more. But why do you say it and not do it? If you follow through, then you start to enjoy it a bit more, and then you'll stick with it. Another Edo line. I dare you to quit the thing or hate the thing that you're good at. How many of us have started something new, been really bad at it, and said, nah, this isn't for me? Quit once you're good. Say that again? Quit once you're good. Yeah, right. Get to that point and then bail. Because then you can make an accurate decision of, is this actually for you? Is it um, worth your time? Is there a benefit to it? And of course, we need to you know, be able to discern ahead of time if something's a true waste of time. But if something's established and you, you're like, oh, you know what? I should try this more. I should be a more expressive person. Maybe a dance class will help me. And you go to the dance class and it's like, yeah, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, because you were embarrassed because you sucked. Do you think you were going to show up and be good? If you did, you wouldn't have had to go in the first place. 
So get comfortable with that sucking. And this is one of the things that I really um, appreciate and believe is one of the most powerful things in this kind of movement orientation, the movement practice, is you're constantly going to things that you're not so good at, things that make you uncomfortable. You do it in a community of people who have a similar mindset. So now you have people around you who are not used to being uncomfortable and certainly aren't judging and no one cares anyway. And you just keep plugging away until you find from it what you enjoy. Why do you not like it? Because you never did it. Could you make the, the same parallel between doing the thing that, that you love but that is you know, causing you pain? Like, nah, but I fucking love playing soccer mm. and turning up every weekend and you know, smashing it out in the field. That's my jam. Um, in a sense, that also exists in the movement realm. Right? There's people in there who are so entrenched in the culture and, you know, I, I mean, I, I know firsthand I dealt with a lot of injuries through that time, mm. right? Um, I know there's people in there who have, you know, dealt with serious injuries. But it's like, no, because I'm committed to this culture. Mm. This is what I like. How do you, rec- you know, how do you reconcile that idea? I think that's part of the journey as well is, do you know anyone in your life who's not been in some pain? No. Of course not. Everyone's got things. Whether you play too much soccer, whether you're doing quote-unquote, movement too much, or sitting on the couch too much. Part of what you need to find out is, how do I manage that? And unfortunately, most people's response is, well, I'll pay someone else to fix my problem and then go back to doing what I want. Which, great, if you want to do that, by all means. But don't complain about it because you're making a choice there. Mm-hmm. Most, of, most people, I think, have outsourced um, any knowledge of their own body. And, and if you change your focus a little bit, change your perspective a little bit and think, no, I want to learn to understand how to manage these things as they come up and hopefully avoid them as much as possible, you're going to have some setbacks on the way. I'll give you an example. I was speaking to um, a friend a few weeks ago, and she was getting a little bit sad about an injury that she'd had. And she was, she's doing regular weight training um, She's found it's the best thing for mental health is doing physical stuff, which is, as I'm sure you are in agreement with. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was really bummed out that she had another setback uh, because I've been doing this for three years. I would think I, w- I, I would hope, I had hoped that I would know how to uh, avoid injuries and use my body by this point. But if you look at it any other way, it doesn't make any sense. How many years did you study mathematics in school? Are you a master of mathematics? How many, even if you did a undergraduate degree for four years, are you a master? No. Do you understand it? Eh, better than most. And that's ignoring the previous 12 years you did before that to get basic understanding. How many PhDs do you need to do before you truly, truly understand it? And our body is so complex, we don't know very much about it at all. <laughs> Really, we're doing the best we can. We're trying to learn more. But there's so many things we don't understand. And yet people will try to have a, uh, do some movement or have a workout a few times a week or even every day and expect to understand their body in five years. That's, that's a lifelong journey. We're in this, you know, this bag of meat for our whole lives. So exploring what it has to offer and how you can experience life through it is a very great thing. And in that process, you'll, you'll learn some, you'll have some injuries, have some setbacks, 
But if you go through them with a nice mindset of, okay, I'm going to learn more through this, it becomes very empowering. Because then as the next little thing comes up, it do, it's not even a thing. Because you address it before it becomes a real problem. And the biggest uh, factor in this, I believe, is actually, well, not the biggest, that's not true. A large factor in this is the emotional regulation of it. I'll give an example. You know, I was, I was at jujitsu. I um, there's this little guy at, at the gym, and he often, you know, if you, he'll get close guard, climb up on you, and then try to do a little cheeky Ezekiel choke on you. And the the roles were reversed, and I saw the opportunity. I'm just I'm having fun, so I'm like, oh, I'm gonna sit up on him. So so I'm he's standing, and I'm close guard on him. And then I decided to try to drop down, grab his legs, and push him over for the sweep. Right as I went to drop all my weight down, he grabbed my head and pulled. And I just started <laughs> up the neck. Sure enough, like, okay, my neck's getting stiff pretty quick. Now, I've done these enough times that I knew it wasn't a, a life-threatening issue. It wasn't a serious, serious problem. But I woke up the next day, couldn't move my neck much. And I just spent a few days doing things for my neck. I had a, my emotional reaction was, damn. Okay, we move on. And most people's reaction is fear. Oh my God, what have I done? Is it a serious problem? They go to a doctor who says, no, there's no real issue. Take some drugs and go see a physio if it's really bad. Rest for a couple weeks. Rest for a couple weeks, something like that. Now, you've put all of your cards in someone else's hand. You don't know what to do. You're afraid of doing anything to make it worse, which just makes everything stiffer. Whereas if you aren't getting emotionally invested and just take an exploratory mindset, a cautious exploratory mindset, you can actually get a lot more function quite a bit quickly, uh, quite a bit more quickly. Now, that's a difficult thing to do. It's way easier to say, right? Mm. I've had plenty of injuries and I've learned from it. Now, going back to your point of you've been in the movement culture world and had some injuries from it. I think one that's part of the journey, part of the issue as well, sometimes, you know, in the, in the world, it's a lot of... Uh, online programming, which doesn't have in-the-moment feedback. And that's on you to start recognizing, I am pushing it too far on this thing. And it's a very difficult thing to manage of, okay, I'm already pretty strong here, but I want to keep working on it, and this is my program, so I do my program, and you have injury. Mm. We go back to this spectrum that I was talking about before. Some people come in, you have the classic, ah, she'll be right. I have this little thing, a little niggle in my neck, a little thing going on. She'll be right. Push through. Push through. That By the time that person's 40, how many injuries do they have? Now, they're a hard worker. They get stuff done. But what have they done to their body? On the other side, you have the people who generally are a bit too soft. They feel something. Oh, it might be an injury. I need to rest. Any sensation they think is a problem. Whatever side of the spectrum you're on, go to the other one. Start engaging with the other side. And by doing so, the person who generally works really hard is actually going to slow down their short-term progress because they're not pushing as hard. However, long-term progress will probably be better. Why? Because they, don't ha they avoid some injuries that otherwise would have been a problem. Mm -hmm. The person who's too soft, they're going to have some injuries, certainly, but their overall progress will be much better because they're going to push into those injuries, but they have to learn. Otherwise, they never do anything because they're always afraid of any sensation that might be an injury. So learning how to operate in the day-to-day, -day, recognizing when something's an issue, when you need to change it up a little bit, and know how to navigate that 
knowing how to navigate that becomes massively empowering for you just as a person, as a human, as a mover, as a whatever you are, just to go through your day-to-day life and not get uh, too frustrated with whatever happens in your body. Ah, I got this injury. I rolled my ankle. I can't go to the gym. And then you sit on the couch for two weeks. It's like, is that really the answer? First off, there's so many things you can do without an ankle. Show up anyway. Come surround yourself by a community of people who will then, you know, uplift your spirits a little bit and work on something else that one, distracts you from the problem if you need to truly rest it and not do anything with it and start progressing in some area. There's a line, I I don't remember who this came from. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to misattribute it, but it's not from me, of never never waste an injury, Mm. right? You hurt your wrist, great, stop balancing on your hands. You need to do another one-arm handstand. Why don't you go learn some coordination patterns? Yeah. Right? It's giving you an opportunity to move away from the things you already do a lot of. Yeah, I've always found my greatest progress in any training has come from an injury. My great, you know, my my best upper body strength was at a time when I had a a knee problem years ago and then vice versa when I busted up my wrist with some of my best squatting gains and lower body strength. So there's always an opportunity there. Mm. A question for you on that, you know, your, I very much understand your perspective and I think for a lot of people listening, it's, it's if they can follow, right? Because there's, there's, some, there's some high level kind of thinking and, and perspective in that. But for, do you ever see that you would be drawn into specialization in your training or are you committed in a sense to this to following this movement path? Um, that's, a, that's a tricky question to answer, and it's looking into the future, and I can't know that. <laughs> um, one thing, this movement world, and I've been training with Ido now for, what, eight years, coming up on nine, and he, what he talks about as far as what movement is makes sense to me. It's, it's not what you're doing so much as the f- philosophical framework behind what Uh, leads you to choose different things and what you take from it and how you organize into the next thing you do. Now, he's a different person than I am. And while I agree or what he says makes sense to me as far as what movement is, I'm still going to do things my way. I'm still going to choose my own path along that way, which is going to be different from his. So, I'm not directly answering your question. I'm very aware of that. But focuses change from time to time. For example, I had time where I was very much focused on the strength work when that was what the strength work was. Uh, You can see one thing Ido does do is break his own dogmas because it used to be, oh, if I have a planche, I can move better. And then he realized, wait a minute, that's not true at all. Yeah, The planche doesn't help me move. It helps with some things, but it's a very small world. So he backed away from the strength work a little bit. Um. And that's kind of what I hope to do for myself is I don't have necessarily a concrete rule of I am putting everything in my life towards movement. Definitely not. But as I find any beliefs that I'm holding on to, I want to question them a little bit. And the focus will change, as I said. So I was doing a bit of the strength work and then I moved actually too far away from that for a while because some old injuries started cropping up that, you know, never were a problem for a while. You know, my, AC, my old ACL reconstruction knee has been giving me some grief just because I didn't do enough strength work for a while. When did you have that done? When I was 14. Mm, okay. So a while ago now. Wow, 14, yeah. Yeah, half my life ago. 
Um, and it's most, it, it's great. You know, it was giving me pain until I started training this way. And then when I neglected some of the strength work, it's come back. Um, right now, a big focus for me is actually how am I communicating with my community? How can I educate better? How can I set up better systems? How can I uh, improve my teaching to a massive level? So some of my time in training has been, I've taken some time away from training to do that. So maybe I'm not 100% committed to just moving for myself. Of course not. It's something I have to share with other people. And I think it's something that should be shared because it can be so powerful. So still didn't really answer the question, but it's a hard no, one. No, it's a fair response. There, yeah, there's, there's no real clear answer for that, is there? No. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just interested to, you know, you, you have a very unique position on the whole thing. So I'm kind of, I'm keen to see where you go with it. You Me know. too. <laughs> um, what's it like in your gym? How do you, do you lay it on folks like that from the beginning? Or do you have more of a kind of, I don't know, sort of um, lower barrier to entry in terms of, yeah, get in here, do some training kind of thing. And then over time you start to apply. Well, since I've been on the road for the last three months, this has actually been something that's been on my mind massively of how can we do this better? Because you, you have someone who might really enjoy this style of training that we're doing and they can get turned off in the first session or two because it's too different from what they were expecting. Mm. So how do we manage that? And on one side, you can just say, ah, the people who want to come will come and, and that's that. But I feel like that's a disservice to a lot of people who could get a lot of benefit from uh, the training if they actually stuck around. It's hard, and it's hard to run a gym off that attitude or a successful business. True, true. So I've been thinking about that a lot and, and I've got some changes planned for when I go back um, of how we do that new student experience um, model. Uh, what was the question again? Yeah, how you would onboard someone. You know, they show up, they're like, oh, I've seen you guys doing some stuff, mm. looks cool, people look fit. I'd like to look like that. Yeah. Do some cool tricks. Uh, so the, the, the model that I'm going to set up going back is going to have a lot more individual contact happening because you need to meet someone where they're at, right? Yeah. The, we go back to our examples, been using the whole time, of the yoga person comes in, and we do a session where everyone's just sweating buckets and smashing themselves, they're probably not going to come back. Once again, a generalization. Mm. The CrossFit guy comes in and we're doing some improvisational floor work stuff. I've seen the drool come out of their mouths as they're, they're trying to understand what's going on. Yeah. Just, they got bored is what it came down to because it didn't make any sense and it was too easy and, and soft. Yeah. Where's the workout here? Yeah, Exactly. Um, so how do you fix that? You talk to them as an individual and some of the early exposure needs to be whatever they need. So I want to set it up that way where there's a bit more, uh, individual discussion and exposure and to whoever they are. So we can still talk about their individual goals and over time start talking about more of some of the other possibilities. So one of the things I've decided from, or we've decided that modus is, it should be a place where anyone can take from it what they want, right? Now, we have some stipulations on minimal effort, of course. Mm -hmm. But it can also be a place where people are there for eight hours a day training because they've got more things they want to do. And we have some people who are there all day long. And we've got some people who come twice a week, 
right? And I want to have that availability for everyone, but finding a way to do both of those things is, uh, is the challenge. My only ask for people is that they come with an open mind. They're happy to do anything we're doing. They're actively working on the things they struggle with. An example is focus. Most people struggle with focus. End of a long day. You've been working. We haven't been a student since we were in high school and weren't even a good student at that point. And now I'm asking you to focus and learn something. Very challenging for, for many adults. As long as I see some effort in that direction, we're good. You do 90-minute classes too, don't you? Yeah, or longer. So, yeah, right. So the session's a bit more demanding, yep, on the person's energy. Do you have a minimum attendance? You, like if someone's like, how often do I need to come? Um, no, not really. Now, our, our tuition pack setups are geared so that people can't come in, you know, once every two weeks, every month, or they can, but they're wasting a lot of money Yeah, is what it comes down to. Um, yeah, I just use that as the boundary and that works well enough. So what's your minimum recommendation? Like for someone to say, get the value from it? Well, th that's a tricky thing, right? So in the beginning, I think three times a week generally is pretty good for people just because it gets them used to what we do a little bit more. But Early on, I start having conversations with people about how to, to change how they view their day-to-day -day life. So how can you use your environment to train a little bit more or move a little bit more? The easy example is the doorway chin-up bar. Mm -hmm. Go buy one, 20 bucks, put it up at your house, put it in your kitchen, put it by your, by your bathroom. Every time you walk by it, you hang for 30 seconds to one minute. That's going to do massive things for your shoulders, your spine, for just general physicality with very little investment. Now, in the beginning, people put it up and never hang. Or the even more accessible one, the squat, as long as there's no uh, lower body issues. Start putting it throughout your day and start using it. And then eventually it just becomes normal. If you have the experience of trying to change your diet when you, you used to eat horribly and then try to change that around, there's low compliance in the beginning. But once you get onto it, it's, just a, it's not a thing anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just what you do and you put zero thought to it. So if you can look for little opportunities throughout your day to make these changes, you're going to be getting a lot of return for it. So I start getting people on those conversations, and then they, from there it usually leads to them coming in a bit more often. But we have some people who, who only come once a week because they live too far away. And I, can't tell, I don't want to tell them, oh, only three times a week minimum, and then they're driving an hour, and that's not realistic. Now, some people have done it, but... I'd rather have them do that one time a week, manage expectations, and then discuss with them of what can they do at home to keep working forwards. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. We have a very similar thing here. It's, uh, you know, I guess we usually tell folks three sessions a week's a great start, but we've had people in the past who are like, I can only get down there once, but I'm going to spend half the day there. Mm. And they're like, that's great. You know, you, you make it work for you. But yeah, of course, it's got to be it's got to be open for them. I guess the tricky part is that the the movement thing is very attractive from the outside. Yeah. And it looks very cool. It looks super fun. You know, it really speaks to most people. And then when you get in, you're like, wow, this is a big commitment. Time and energy-wise. And, and most people who are looking to get a bit fitter, whatever, aren't prepared to make the commitment to that degree. Uh, yeah, I agree with that for sure, which is, which is why I like to promote communication as much as possible with new students. So then, because with anything, it's, it's how much time are you going to put in? Because that can set up what you're going to try to achieve. If you're going to do something, training, movement, 30 minutes a day, 
okay, maybe you can work towards one goal, but you're not going to be able to do much else. And that's fine if that's your choice. Now, I'm going to try to find ways to get you to gradually change lifestyle so you can be doing a little bit more because I think it's a, a valuable way of spending time. But we start with what we start with, right? The other thing that I think helps people with this a little bit, though, is look at it from a longevity standpoint. You have this body. You're with it for your whole life. So you should probably learn how to do something with it. And now suddenly our scope of, of uh, time to work on this thing has gone from, oh, I want to get fit in three months to, well, I've got a few decades to work on me. And if you put it in that scope, it, it becomes much more reasonable, right? Oh, I'm only doing a little bit of training. Okay, well, what are your goals to start? We'll start working towards those. While I still show you there's a little bit more, and you start with the goals that you want, handstand's a common one for people, and then the next one, the next one, and then gradually you get exposure to enough other things that you see value in them, and your goals start changing a little bit. Oftentimes, people's lifestyles and values change as well, which allows them to put a little bit more time into it. And when I say a little bit more time, I just mean, you know, an hour or two a day, depending on the individual. And then on days where maybe you don't do full training, you're still squatting throughout the day while you're waiting for uh, the kettle to boil. You're doing some spine waves or whatever it is. When you do go read your book, you're in a squat or stretching and finding times just to do it. It's become, uh, I'm sure you've talked about the whole, uh, sitting is bad, right? Sitting is the new smoking was the tagline for a while there. Yeah. Okay. So what do people do? Stand, squat. Why not move around on the floor, fidget, whatever it is. Do you have to remain still? No. Now, if you can't remain still, that's a, that's a different conversation. You need to work on that one too. But just start doing things differently. How do kids work? And I literally mean work, doing schoolwork or whatever it is, or read a book. You ever see a kid sit still for very long? They'll be in the chair for five minutes, and they're on the floor, they're on their stomach, they're on their back, they're kicking their legs. They're doing all this different stuff. Yeah. If you did that, your body would probably be a lot better. But, oh, that looks weird. And? I still think it's weird that you're in pain and you don't do anything about it, right? Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, everyone's got to, as long as they're having conversations with themselves and potentially with whoever they're, they're learning from about what can I reasonably expect to achieve here and what are my actual goals and how much time am I willing to put into it or what am I not willing to give up is maybe a more important question. Mm -hmm. Then you can, you can have an outlook particularly when you're looking at decades. And that's not saying that I expect everyone who comes to Modus to have a decade commitment or something like that. But I hope that after you've been with us for a time, and it's not going to be a few months, but a few years or something, you have a different outlook that will be with you for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're with us for decades, absolutely great. We'll keep working on stuff. Um, but for those who you know move away or whatever it is or just leave, Hopefully, you, we've changed your perspective a little bit so that you're living your life in a slightly different way that's going to improve your physicality and quality of life as you age. Man, I think that's a pretty powerful place for us to end it on. Sounds good. I like your message there. I, um, I hope that, that, that it speaks to a lot of folks. And I think that the, the longevity thing, it's interesting coming from you because it's not something that most people think about in their 20s. No. You tend to think about the longevity piece... Not even where I'm at, like you know, I'm I'm 38. I think for a lot of people, it doesn't hit them until they're well and truly 
you know, at the point where they fucked up. Yeah. You know? Um, but it's a, it is a great way to frame kind of your, this training process that you're in and take your mind away from the short-term nature of a lot of our desires yeah. and put it into more of a, a, a larger framework where you're like, oh, okay, I am hoping to be on this planet for another 40, 50, 60 years. How do I want that time to be? Yeah. I, early on, I, once again, I, I wish I remembered who I heard these things from to give better credit, but uh, someone framed it as a, just look at any endeavor you do in 10-year chunks, in a decade chunk. Which means even if you're 40, and we say average life expectancy, we'll go on the short end, even, even 70. All right, you got three more 10-year chunks to dive into something. That's an incredible amount of time. So when I, stu- when I first decided, okay, I'm not going to travel, I'm going to do movement, I said I'm going to commit at least 10 years to this, at least. And in that time, I've learned, okay, I'm still going to have my body after the 10 years. So even if I decided I was going to do something else, which I don't think I'm going to at, the, at this stage, I'll start branching out, but still have plenty to work with here. Um, I'm going to have my body for the rest of my life. So movement's going to be there for the entire time. And if I got to 40 in another uh, 11 years and said, actually, I don't want to be spending this much time doing it, I would still do some because I need to take care of my body. And guess what? I've got another three decades to work on three separate 10-year projects. We've got time, but we should keep moving forwards as if we don't have too much. Don't want to sit on the couch too long. We've got time, though, to explore things. So why not choose something that's worth exploring, even if it's a bit uncomfortable sometimes, especially if it's something that we're living with for the rest of our lives, however long that may be. Your body. What else do you have? That's right. Once it's all gone, that's the only thing you got. Mm-hmm. Mate, um, where can... I know you're not a huge social media guy, but where can people find you, maybe find the gym? Yep. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at MJ Bernacchi. It's my last name, B-E-R-N-A-C-C-H-I. And then you can find us at Modus Australia. That's uh, a bit easier to spell. And uh, our email is info at modusaustralia.com.au. So you can reach out anywhere if you have any questions. Modus Australia, I like that. Yeah. That's cool, man. Dude, um, it's great to catch up. I, uh, I, I would love to come and visit WA at some point. I always yeah. say that. It's such a beautiful part of the country. God knows what will happen, you know, borders and all that shit. I hope you can get back. Yep. You're going back tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow morning. I hope it's successful for you. Yep. Looking good so far, fingers crossed. Yeah. You're always um, welcome. Thank you, bro. Yeah, yeah be good. You, you know, I, um, I don't much fuck around with the spinal waves these days, but I would do them with you. <laughs> I want you to know that. Good. I look forward <laughs> to that day. Um, guys, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, that was a co- super cool chat with Mark. Check out their gym. Check out what he does. They're doing some really cool stuff. If you are in WA or you know someone over there, push this episode to them. Tell them, hey, go check out this gym. It's pretty, some, doing some fascinating stuff. If you dig the episode, please share it on your socials. Help support the show. We really appreciate it. We'll catch you guys next week. Thank you. Goodbye.